So I want to begin reading in verse 17 of chapter 1. We'll read the entirety of the prayer in chapter 2. Begin to unpack it together. Verse 17 of Jonah chapter 1. After he'd been thrown overboard, it says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. My prayer is this becomes more than just ink on a page, but it becomes the very word of God. The word that we see Jesus being tempted in the wilderness says that human beings do not live on bread alone, but instead by every mouth, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We see an amazing prayer, a, a poetic and powerful prayer that sounds a lot like one of the psalms that we have been walking through in the last couple of summers together. And bookended from the end of chapter 1 to the end of chapter 2 are the two mentions of this fish, this great fish. Now, I don't want you to be freaked out by the fish, okay? Just think of it as like a, I don't know, uh, like, a, like a Hebrew form of a taxi, okay? It's like a Hebrew Uber, I don't know, whatever, whatever, whatever you think of. It's like a, like a bus ride, okay? It's just a way that God supernaturally, miraculously, albeit unbelievably, gets a person from one place to the other. Gets a guy from where he should not have been to where he was supposed to be all along. Okay, don't be freaked out about the fish. We talked about this last week. The extent to which you realize the grace of God is miraculous in your own life is the extent to which believing in a fish becomes fairly believable. And I don't, I don't, I don't want to like kind of soft sell this one. Now, again, there's different ways we can think about this, but, but I don't want to push back on the idea that this is a miracle. There's something here that is miraculous. Now, a couple warnings. It tends to be our, uh, our own kind of inclination that we, we open up something like this and we think, it's 2017, how could I believe something crazy like this, right? And we, we tend to have a great deal of snobbery and every generation is this way. Remember we saw this in Ecclesiastes? He says, look, don't ask why aren't things like the good old days, that's foolish. Everyone thinks that things used to be better, but now we're somehow like, either worse off, or now we're wiser than the people before us. Not true, okay? Don't miss that, like, the first people who would have read this more than 2,000 years ago, okay, would have found this just as unbelievable as you do, okay? So resist the temptation for some sort of intellectual snobbery that this is more unbelievable for you because you're more astute and intelligent than anyone who's ever lived, okay? Don't, I don't want to miss it. This is a miracle. Whether you lived, eight, again, the 8th century uh, eight centuries before Jesus or now, this is bizarre. And I want to push this. This, this is something we, we are invited, the Christian faith, to believe in something bizarre. We're in the fifth week of the season of Easter. And we contemplate the meaning of this, that a man 
took our place and died, but he did something that people don't do. Three days later, he walked out victorious for your sake and mine. This is not even close to the craziest thing that we believe. <laughs> it's not even close. We, there, we, we believe in much crazier things. And here's the, here's the fun part. I'm going to invite you to this, to the course of this chapter. This is where we find our hope. So there's something miraculous that takes place. And the first thing that we're called to do, I believe, is just to worship. It says in verse 17 of chapter 1, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. That's the setting for chapter 2. That's the setting for this poetic prayer that we walk through in chapter 2. It says, And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Uh, this was, uh, in anter- for ancient Near Eastern uh, region, this, would, this picture of being three days in or out of something is the, is the picture of like the, the longest possible tolerable length, specifically the, the, the length of the journey into the depths. This is important for us. This has a little bit of meaning later, <clears throat> Jesus. Um, but this, this, is, this is supposed to kind of point towards something. And that's why the language of chapter 2 is largely the langu- language of death. Did you get that? Like the darkness, the distance from living. That's what we see here. So just stop there. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Please don't get stuck on the fish, okay? Don't be fixated and focused on the fish. Be fixated. Be focused upon the one who sent the fish, okay? Like, if you can get your puppy to sit, people like, oh, that's really good. Well done, okay? Have you ever appointed a fish to swallow a human? And then don't eat it. Don't kill it. Hold on to it. And then I need you to spit it out a few days later. So again, this, this, this strange story, this beautiful literary work, first invites us to awe and to worship. We have a God who tells fish what to do. Get that? We have a God who tells great fish. Now here's where we're tempted to kind of, I think, maybe understand this or soften the blow of the, of the miraculous nature of this. So there's different historical accounts of men, um, whalers, for example. This is in, in the early 20th century, people who were swallowed by sperm whales. Um, now here, this word, a great fish, is just that. It's like literally, it could be a, it, this literally could, it, you could justifiably trans, translate this sea monster. It just means a big thing that lives in the water. This, the large category of things that swim and live under the water, that's what we have here. Could be a whale, could be a fish. But there's, there's some stories, like the earliest 20th century, um, we, there was people who were like swallowed by sperm whales, fell out, sperm whale, massive, eats the thing, eats a person. Um, and then there's, well, there's one we see, that, uh, the man was found, he was dead inside the belly of the whale, and the whale died because when he swallowed the man, it, it messed some things up inside, caused the, the whale to die, all right? So there's multiple miracles here. I don't want to soft sell that. There's like the fact that the fish survived, much less the person is something. Early 20th century, we see an account of there's like a modern day Jonah. You'll see it made, made lots of papers. It's kind of sketchy um, where a man was swallowed. They fight the, they, they kill the, kill the sperm whale and he's unconscious, but survived. Problem is, I don't know if I would put my faith in that one. Um, I don't know if I would put my faith in that story. And, and when I say that is I don't think I really want to like make you understand that this is possible and like wrap your mind around, oh, this is reasonable and rational. I don't want to do that. In fact, I want to push the exact opposite direction. This is a divine and sovereign act of a God who works sometimes in ways contrary to the way he designed the world to work. And we call that a miracle. And even the, you know, even the attempt to like wrap your mind around it might be removing the miraculous nature of it. So God caused this to happen. It's going to get Jonah from one place to the next. I mean, it's only in the infinite creativity God that, uh, of God that he spins a, a, a sins a big fish. There's a, different ways to see this. Maybe he was unconscious. Uh, maybe he, uh, some, some scholars, a minority of people believe that he actually died and he was resurrected or was revived in some way when he was spit out. Either way, this is a miracle. This is crazy. And the prayer that we have here, the reflection that, that Jonah has is, is based on a radical experience of a miracle. As far as Jonah is aware, a radical miracle happened. And so for the purpose of this prayer, I think we see two important things. In this prayer... First thing we'll look at, there's the central element of transformation is the experience of the grace of God. Jonah was thrown overboard in the middle of the ocean. There's only one thing that happens when you're thrown overboard in the middle of the ocean, you drown. And yet that isn't where this story ends. 
The second thing I want to walk through as we kind of look at the components of how Jonah's heart is changed and transformed by what we see happen here is that there's also a process of transformation. The grace of God infiltrates the mind, and for our purposes here in the book of Jonah, it's especially important, the heart. Jonah understood these things rightly. He's a prophet. He's a man of God. And that's what I I think is most beautiful about this story and the way the Bible teaches us some things about who he is. Like, just think about it. Who's the bad guy in this story? Was it the pagans, the, the, the polytheistic idol worshipers that were on the boat? No. They seem to be an innocent character. Is it the people of Nineveh, the, the Assyrians, the violent ones? No. Who does it paint a picture of as the evil one, the, the bad guy, the antagonist of the story? It's the religious guy. And there's a beautiful thing that happens in the Scripture all the way to Jesus. There's a warning to you and I, if you think you have it figured out, if you think you have it understood, particularly if you're like, I already know this. Even especially in the book of Jonah, if I open a book and you're like, oh, I know this story, this is for you. The minute you think, I got this, the book of Jonah is an illustration. No, you don't. No, you don't. And even if you do have it, something is going to happen. Something is on its way that will disrupt it. So the first thing we see here is that the central element of transformation, like heart change in Jonah, is an experience of the grace of God. So we're going to read this kind of backwards and, and look at where he, the crescendo, he, he starts saying, I, crawl, I called out of distress, God answered me, I was in the depths, Sheol, this is the, the language of the depths, the pit, the underworld, if you will. He was cast out, driven away, but then he is reminded of God's temple and he looks to it and wants to one day look upon the temple. He thinks on it. You see that in verse 4 and verse 7. Things seem to be taking over. And then the crescendo we see in verse 8 and verse 9, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. That in some of your translations, it may literally just say grace. This is the picture of God's mercy, God's, uh, God's relenting of his wrath. Verse 9, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Listen to this. For salvation belongs to the Lord. The crescendo of this prayer is that ultimately salvation belongs to God. There is nothing that you and I can do to change our own hearts, to save our own lives. In the end, it is in the hands of a sovereign God. The stakes that couldn't be higher. Again, he uses words like salvation to talk about eternal things, things that that are eternally good or eternally awful, and they are in the hands of the Lord. Well, how did he get there? How did he land there? How does he speak with an exclamation, only God can save? Well, you already know how this story begins and ends, right? Conceivably, he just got spat out onto a beach, onto dry land uh, by a fish. Suffice to say, your experience of the world would look differently, right? Your perspective would, would be a little bit changed. Now, I don't, I don't want to mess with you, but, but like, I know some of you germaphobe friends of mine, I apologize for this, but like, uh, there's only a few things worse than throwing up, uh, and that's being thrown up upon, and I guess I would add to the list here, and that's being thrown up. <laughs> I just, I, I like to fake throw up all the time, so this story just, it's playing right into my hand. But like, Suffice to say that would change the way you see the world, right? Everything would be a little bit different, right? If something happened bad, that would be the thing you drop all the time, right? Like, ooh, what's that smell? That's not even nothing, man, nothing. You don't even know what smells bad. I mean, I know some of you, like, let's be honest, like, are there lots of you that, if you'd raise your hand, are you grossed out by fish? Would you raise your hand, join me? Are you grossed out by fish? Yeah, there's a few, yeah. Some Some of you won't even touch a fish, the outside of the fish. It's slimy and nasty on the outside. For the rest of us that are we're like maybe a little hard, we're a little, little tougher, it's still gross. You clean a fish, it's not pretty. Okay? How it turns into something that you can eat, that's, a, that's one of those mercies of God. <laughs> Just, again, we saw this, remember the, the bacon chapter in the book of Acts? Same thing, God takes something filthy and it's kind of cool. Well, here we have the worst of the worst had to have changed his perspective and he then declares salvation belongs to the Lord. As if to say, look, if, if you knew, 
If you knew what I've been through, you would exclaim the miraculous and wonderful grace of God. Like if you even, like at first I thought I was going to die by drowning in the ocean. And then I thought I was going to die by being eaten by a fish. And as if that weren't enough, I thought I would just die slowly in the belly of a fish. Until now, he says, look, salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, here's, I don't think that he wrote this poem, this prayer. I don't think he like had a pen and paper while in the belly of the fish, okay? So just, we would have to assume this is something that later he reflected upon. Uh, I, remember a, 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 I remember a children's book, what I read when I was little, and it showed a picture of a big fish, and Jonah was sitting there with like a house and a ship that had all been swallowed by this massive fish, and he's sitting at a desk with a, like, a, like a lamp and writing. I don't think that's it. I don't want to, again, I don't want to like put away the miraculous nature of this. That's probably pushing a little too far for me. So what we see here is not necessarily like word for word, like he was in the belly of the fish going, no, that's not right. You know, I called out to the Lord. No, let me, you know, it's more of, this is a reflection. This is a meditation that springs up from his own heart. The kind of thing that we see like in Psalm 23, like the exclamation, the Lord is my shepherd. He's, He's all, I don't want anything else. He's everything I need. The kind of exclamation that comes from the depths of the soul. We see here him making a prayer. Now, I want to teach you a little bit about this. Some of you who remember our time in the Psalms last summer and the summer before, you won't need to hear this, but this is a form of Hebrew poetry. Now, Hebrew poetry is different, like any other form of poetry. And, and those kinds of poetry, like, they, they, they build an expectation. You kind of know what's going on, right? So in a more westernized, like, say, like, nursery rhyme kind of poetry, you kind of know what's happening because the, the most important component in that kind of poetry is rhyme, right? Like, roses are red, violets are blue, some, some, something rhymes with blue, right? You just know that's going to happen. Hickory dickory dock, three mice ran up the clock. You, you know what I'm saying? Like, this is, like, oh, and, and there's, like, before it's over, you already kind of know where it's going. You, you sense where the poem is taking you. Every form of poetry has that. There's like a feel to it. My, my favorite's like haiku. Haiku is, is, is like an Eastern kind of structure that's it's meant to spur contemplation. So the idea of like five syllables, seven syllables, and five syllables leads you with this like open-ended thought, right? Because if you ever try to summarize anything with five syllables, you're left going like, huh? This, I, I thought of it, if I could make one up, like, uh, I don't know. I preached... At wackos, I don't know, many people were asleep. Okay, I don't know. <laughs> and now I've got five syllables to, sur- to like summarize it, to wrap it up, and it's not enough. And so you're left hanging, so it's like, it was so much fun. And you're like, and so haiku even, that structure, is meant to spur on meditation. You're meant to think like, Hmm. Remember, it's, 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 a, it's often used in, a, in kind of an Eastern form of Confucianism to where the, the goal is to meditate on incomplete thoughts where you just go like, hmm, yeah, it was a lot fun. Or I don't know, I, just, I can't count to five out loud. Here we go. But like this, this kind of poetry is meant to spur something in you and you're supposed to expect something. But the way that it does it, Hebrew poetry does this, is through repetition and then parallelism. That is, there are lines that always run parallel. Either they're the same thing back to back, or they're meant to be parallel running in opposite directions. A proverb shows this, right? Like a wise person does this, a foolish person does this. They run parallel in opposite directions. Or it will repeat things like a foolish person's this, he's really foolish, and they're parallel going in the same direction. Get it? This, and you're supposed to expect that here. So I want you to see as you, as you meditate on this and read on this through this week, it's a short little passage, you begin to see what what is repeated and what is run parallel is meant to grab your attention. And whenever the Bible paints multiple pictures of the same thing, you're meant to, you're meant to stop and go, well, I gotta, there's something going on here. Whenever it gives us a synonym, so he starts and he says, out of my distress I called and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. Did you get that? Like parallel statements running in the same direction. And it's meant to say, ding, ding, ding. Eyes on this. Pay attention to this. Anytime someone repeats something to you, that's their nice way of saying they think you're probably not very bright and you're going to forget it, right? That's his. This, this is Hebrew poetry. Built for people who are like, I don't remember things. Well, I'm going to say it over and over and over again. I call out to the Lord 
And he answered me, out of the depths he heard my voice. You cast me into the deeps, into the heart of the seas, and even the flood surrounded me, and all your waves and billows passed over me. So we have this parallel going in the same direction. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Do you get that? Bad things happening, but parallel to it, in the opposite direction, God is at work. And it's in this radical experience of grace that finally, in the crescendo, he says, those who pay regard to idols, right? They believe wrongly about God. They consider thoughts of God that are unworthy of him. They worship things and elevate things that are not God to the position of God. Those people running in this direction, see what happens? They forfeit, they give up, they forsake any hope of his kindness and mercy. Don't miss this. Remember the the theme that runs throughout the entirety of the Bible we kind of see here, at least elevated, right? The, The Lord opposes the proud, but he draws near to the humble. We see this here. If there is an idol, something you have elevated to the place of God, don't miss this. You have forfeited his mercy. You're you're running parallel to God, but you're running in the opposite direction. As if like passing on the highway. People who on this lane regard idols. They exalt things above the creator. They take the creation and they say, this is what I really need. This is what satisfies me. They pass God's grace on the highway. If they're nice, like a small Iowa or South Dakota two-lane highway, they wave on the way by. But they completely miss one another. Completely. But with a voice of thanksgiving, now I will sacrifice to you. And what I have vowed, I will pay. Why? Why? What's what's running in the direction of thanksgiving? What's running in the direction of sacrifice and and the vow and commitment and, and the things that we will lay down for the cause of God? Salvation belongs to the Lord. Some commentarians will say this, this particular phrase right here could basically summarize the entirety of the Bible. The entirety of the Bible, salvation belongs to God. And we saw this last week. This is important for us because there's roughly, we would categorize two different types of people in the world. We tend to see the, you know, this through this lens. is like there's religious people and then there's irreligious people. Now, something you've heard me say over and over and over again, we talk about this especially with respect to the parable of the prodigal son, the, the, the irreligious son, and then the highly religious son. They're the same person. They're the exact same person. In the end, they find their identity and their own performance. They find their own sense of worth and sense of self in themselves. And they see their sense of worth in either how well they can adhere to rules and look down on people, who don't adhere to rules. Oh, those pagans, those people, they don't, they don't follow the rules like us. They're worse than us. And you, need, you have to have that self-righteousness to, to, to prop this up. Or you're on the irreligious side and you define yourself by your irreligiosity. And you prop yourself up by looking down on those poor, ignorant religious people. And we believe here the grace of God is a third way. Did you catch this? On the irreligious side, they would say salvation is irrelevant. Who needs God? Who needs to think of these things? I'm going to define myself by who I am, who I assert myself to be, my own self-identification. And then on the other side, we see people saying salvation belongs to me. I can earn it. I can do this. If I, if I follow these rules, if I, if, I, if I go to worship, if I, if, I, you know, if I listen to sermons and take notes, all these things, I've got to do these things, and then I will, I will, I will basically be delivered from my despair. And, and gr- the grace of God speaks a contradictory word to both the religious and the irreligious. Salvation belongs to neither of you in the hand of God. God's the one who holds this. Now, didn't Jonah already know this? Probably. But something powerful happened. Something amazing happened. And we see that what I can show you here, I think, is that even though he may have known this, something happened. He had a, a transformational experience. To where his crescendo and the prayer that he he leads with here ends in saying salvation ultimately belongs to the Lord. I want you to see this this process of transformation. This this kind of these these components that tend to happen here. These 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 things that happen in order. It says here that he he found himself in distress. 
He felt cast out. But then he started longing for something, and it's, it's, it's kind of peculiar. You see it in verse 4, and you see it in verse 7. He starts longing. Did you catch this? I am driven away from your sight, yet, and he hopefully says here, I shall again look upon your holy temple. I'll look again on your temple. And he says it again in verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. In the depths, in the depths of his own distress and of his own shame and despair, he thinks on the temple. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? And here, here's what I think I'll show you. When you experience grace in a transformational way that penetrates not only the mind and expands the understanding, but even penetrates the heart, you esteem that grace all the more. And it's the beginning of being changed. It's the beginning of the changing of the mind and the beginning of the changing of the heart. It's in the temple that he was longing to be reminded of this. Why would he do that? Because it's in the temple that we see very clearly that sin has a cost. Sin has a price. Now, maybe in your room, in this room, maybe you're, you wouldn't even call yourself a Christian, or maybe you're even kind of skeptic of this language. You're skeptical of this kind of language. I get like, oh, back with that blood language and the sacrificial language. More about this, you know, animals being sacrificed. And, and I know, just hang on a minute before you, before you kind of those, those reservations and, and those kinds of like, like things push back into your own mind. I, I want to show you that you, you probably believe in this temple language more than you realize. You probably believe in it more than you care to admit. Think to a time where you experienced or you witnessed some great evil. Evil that was done to you or injustice perpetrated against you or injustice that you witnessed. What was your gut reaction? You're left in this strange place where if you just let it go, then evil wins. But if you take vengeance in your own hands, well, then evil wins again. And there's this strange place where, where even though you might think, oh, this is, a, this is an archaic language, to think of temple sacrifice and, and, and substitution for sin, that, that, that's, old, that's old language. We don't talk about that kind of thing anymore. I disagree. And you probably use this language more than you realize. Last time you saw some, some sort of language or something that was perpetrated against you or some injustice, you probably thought one of the two things. Either I'll just get over it and I'll let it go because something had to happen, or you thought, I'm going to fight back and do this. And in the end, what you're saying is, there must be some consequence for this injustice. Someone's got to pay for this. And it's in the temple that Jonah begins to hunger for the satisfaction here. You ever felt that way? Because like if someone, if someone does something evil against you and you just like, well, I just forgive them. I'll just let it go. Well, that hasn't helped anyone. That person's just going to go on and commit evil against everybody else. That doesn't help the world. It doesn't help that person. It doesn't serve anyone. And you just kind of like, eh, I'll let it go. I'll just forget about it. You usually can't. But even when you try to do that, it doesn't really help. It, it, it almost perpetuates the evil. That evil, is gonna, somebody's going to keep doing it. But on the other hand, if you've maybe taken justice into your own hands, you felt this, right? Somebody says something against you or does something against you, you're like, well, fine, I'll get back at them. I'll slander them. You wipe them off the face of the planet. Fine, and their friends come after you, and then it's like the Hatfield and McCoys. It's like a grudge. It just goes on and on and on, right? Montagues and Capulets, whatever your picture of like, like a never-ending grudge match that one day ends in loss of life. Evil wins there too. Even when you take justice in your hands, it's like, ugh. You've seen this in the public with this last, uh, this last month, the uh, state of Arkansas um, uh, executed multiple people, people convicted of crimes, and then according to their laws, they, they execute, and, and you see that conversation come up again, like, is this really, did this really fix anything? If we, if we kill the person who killed, did it actually do anything? And you're left, like, like what do we do? Because if you're like, don't kill people, and then you kill someone to prove that point, you, you're kind of, you're kind of. We see this in my own family. It's like, stop yelling. Kind of, you kind of joined in the evil there. And so here's what I would argue: even if you like push back on this temple sacrificial system, you probably believe in it. You just don't want to admit it. In your own heart, you're like, someone must pay. Don't despise those thoughts. Recognize their echoes of the heart of God. 
a God who is just. And Jonah begins to hunger and yearn for the temple. Why? Because in the temple, in the temple, when you see real evil, you also get to see that it is taken seriously. You see that sin has a cost. Where sin is neither let go, nor is it repaid with vengeance. And there's a powerful thing in the temple. A powerful thing. There is blood that is shed in the temple, but it is not the blood of the sinner. Sin is held at a high regard. It has a high cost. But in the temple, that cost is not paid by the sinner. That cost is paid by a willing substitute for us in Jesus Christ. And in the temple, you would have seen an unwilling substitute, but still the shedding of blood for the sake of paying for sin. This is important. Like, because in the temple, God doesn't just let it go, but neither does God repay with vengeance. Like when you and I draw near to God as sinners and say, God, I've sinned, that, I mean, we don't willingly walk into the, to the place where we're executed. And so there's something powerful. If you were to make someone pay, then evil wins. But if you let it go, evil wins. And what do we do? We find here Jonah looks to the temple because Jonah senses that God will be just. God will not just let it go and overlook sin. But on the other hand, God will not repay evil with evil. And Jonah longs for the costly mercy that's made visible in the temple. Because the transformation that Jonah experienced wasn't just his understanding of what God was doing, but it was also an experiential view of the cost of that grace. So last week we talked about how uh, one, comp- one of the key components of grace is that it is an unmerited favor of God on people. Unmerited because you are a sinner and you don't deserve it. But it's favor because the, the love of God is made manifest in God's grace. But the, uh, the other component I would add to that, not just unmerited, but I would add the phrase unobligated. One of the key components of recognizing and having a transforming moment of God's grace isn't just that God gives you something he doesn't deserve. He gives you something he doesn't owe you. Here's a good example. Like, so if your child is acting crazy, and this is a great for Mother's Day, here we go, your, your child's acting crazy, you don't stop being their parent because you have moral and, in the U.S., legal obligations to still be kind to them, to show favor to them because you're obligated to do so. They're your children. But we find out here that, that, that in sin, we are the enemy. We're the ones cast out from God. And so it's not just that God is giving an undeserved and unmerited favor when he shows grace to us. He is giving an unobligated favor. We're in no way like in a position to say God owes us. And yet God freely gives. And this is important because this is what happens. It begins to switch from just being an intellectual concept of grace and it becomes an experiential value of grace. Because when you see the freeness of God's grace, you may just be learning in the mind, but when you see the costliness of God's grace, the cost specifically to him, that's when your heart's being changed. You're esteeming it. You begin to value it. You begin to, quite literally, you appreciate it. That is, you consider the growing, you don't depreciate, you appreciate the value of it. And when you do it, that's when things start to change. Because in the gospel, we have this powerful and amazing grace shown to us that's unmerited and unobligated, but it's the favor of a loving God, such that now we have both now confidence and humility. Humility in the fact that it's unmerited and unobligated, but confidence because we have a loving Father who shows it to us. In the gospel, we have these two concepts right side by side that neither the religious or irreligious can have, and that is both confidence and humility. In Christ, we hold them together. This will start to blow some of your minds. Like, because whenever you're, when you're just highly religious, you usually just have one or the other. You either have just a deep sense of despair and shame because you're not measuring up, or you have this massive sense of pride that you're much, so much better than everyone else. And if you're highly religious, you know what this is like. Like, how do you balance? Where do I? You don't find any joy in it because, like, I'm either like really spiteful towards people and no one likes me, or I'm just so shameful that I hide from people. 
And if you, you want to try to hold that balance of being just religious enough, good luck. But if you're irreligious, you have the same problem. Defining your identity by your own performance, you just kind of go back and forth between like being, well, I mean, I don't, I mean, I'm not religious like those idiots, but, but I'm also just not, I'm not going to be immoral, right? I mean, there's no reason to have any moral righteousness because there's no real God and no reason to have right or wrong, but I'm not crazy. And so you have to kind of like toe this line between being like kind of, kind of rebellious, kind of unreligious, kind of dangerous, kind of reckless, but not so reckless that it actually hurts people. Again, just like the religious person, how's it working out for you? How are you doing toe in the line between being like just rebellious enough to, to not be religious, but not quite rebellious enough to actually hurt myself or anyone else? And there's this powerful thing that the gospel grants us. There is a high cost for sin for which we have a great deal of humility, but that high cost has been paid. There is blood that has been shed, but we have such confidence because it was not ours and it was freely given to us in Jesus. You see Jonah hungering for this. In the end, what I think Jonah is hungering for is this. We, we look to a crucified God who comes, not with weapons in his hands to exact the kind of justice we typically know, but with nails in his hands. And when Jonah's in the depths, he cries out and he longs for the temple. Why? Because he knows that's the only place where sin is held in high regard. But so is by this undeserving gift of God's sacrifice held in equally, even more exponentially great regard. That's the grace of God. That's the grace that'll mess you up. That's the grace that'll leave you at the end of this going like, salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is from God. Do you know what he brought me through? Do you know what I deserve? And how, how I'm not even obligated or how God is in no way obligated to show me any kindness, but yet do you know that I am a child of God? And when you see that, when you lay those side by side, you begin to, in your own heart, be stirred. Your own affections, your value, your appreciation for it comes up, and it changes the way you think, changes the way you live. It's a transformation. So here's what I want to kind of wrap up on. You see God's anger and God's grace all in the story of Jonah. The second, thing I, well, the second thing I think we see, not just like the, the central feature of, is an experience of God's grace, but we see a process of transformation in this, that the grace of God infiltrates the mind and the heart. So I want you to look at the process, the process of understanding sin that Jonah models for you and me. Start at the beginning. It says, I crawled out to God out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. So he starts with just a very simple and visceral experience of discomfort. I called out in my distress. So here's what I want you to see. If you're going to get this right, genuine transformation brought about by genuine repentance. Genuine repentance ends with addressing lordship and idolatry by admitting that there is a real and eternal cost to sin and a pleasure in the grace of God once the sin is out in the open. That's what genuine repentance is. And watch the progress that goes from, at the beginning, Jonah just says, I'm uncomfortable. But by the end, did you catch what he's doing? He's using language of idolatry. He's using high theology to explain the character and nature of God and his sin before them. He's, he's crying out to sacrifice someone to pay for his sin to the point where at the very, at very end, he, he, he declares the grace of God, salvation is from the Lord. So here's what this means. Repentance begins with distress, but it does not end there. It begins with discomfort, but it never ends there. There's a progression in the heart of Jonah and his prayer that goes from the shallow experience of discomfort to the deep and existential knowledge and affection for the love and salvation of God. It's so important. Most people who would call themselves Christian just live in verse 2, calling out to God for their distress. And the thing they really want from God is that God would just give them their own idol of comfort. Stop making me so uncomfortable, God. Help me out. Help me feel better. 
Now that's good. Like if you're there, even now, as I, like, as I talk about sin and the things that we have done to rebel against God, like that I, I hope at least a little that causes you some sense of distress, right? Something in you should go like, I don't like, I don't like that. I don't like thinking about that. There should be some distress. But even as you look at your own life, if you're honest with yourself, there ought to be like, you ought to be able to admit there's some distress. And the truth of the matter is most of that distress, like Jonah, is brought about by our own sin and, and poor decisions. They're usually self-inflicted wounds. So while it is a good first step to cry out to God and say, I don't like what's going on, that is not the end. And friend, I want to I warn you, there, there are massive systems of, of so-called Christianity that are built on living right here at the beginning and just the place of distress. Make me comfortable, I'm uncomfortable. Ooh, I don't like this, help me out. Wah, I don't like this. You don't believe me? I, mean, I don't know how hard to push this, but like, there are massive categories of, I'm going to put this in big quotes, just because I love you, but be careful with it, all right? You can take it one way or the other. There are massive categories and, and like sectors of the economy built on Christian music. Now, personally, if music can't be Christian, only people can be Christian. It's my thoughts. But in, in that vein, it's Christian to the extent that it is calling out to God for relief make me feel better, or it's celebrating our experience of feeling good with, n- with never, never progressing to idolatry, never progressing to the lordship of our God and Savior, and never progressing to the transformational experience of God's grace to our sin. You been caught in this? Now, here's what I'm not saying, okay? The next time someone says, I am distressed, okay, Back off for some of you. I know you got excited. That isn't a place where you go like, you know, like, like oh, I'm in, I'm, in, you know, I'm in trouble. You don't say, your distress is caused by your sin and rebellion against God, and you need the propitiating sacrifice of Jesus Christ for your sin. And I mean, like, okay, you know, slow down, okay? Like, you want to get to that? You want to hold sin highly and then hold the grace of God highly? In that moment, you probably just need to hug that person who's in distress, but here's my, my warning to you. Please don't stay there. Please don't stay there. Please think a little bit more deeply that it might be the case that, like Jonah, that distress may be the sovereign act of God to draw you back to himself. It may be the sovereign act of God to, exp- this is going to hurt, expose your own sin. It may be the will of God to like hurt you like a surgeon hurts you to remove the cancer that's killing you. And this means we don't just talk about things and look at this. He starts in the level of euphemism, right? Distress. Right now, and again, I'm gonna, I'm, I hate to pick on that, but whatever. I, uh, Christian, I like Christian music. I don't hate it, but like, like I don't, I'll pick on it a little bit, I guess. Like in Christian music or in this kind of category of, of pseudo-Christianity, we use euphemisms for sin. Have you heard this? Like, which is everyone's broken, you know, everyone's struggling. And, you know, it's like, have you heard this? That's a good place to start. It really is. I'm not against that. But that's a baby step. Like even a baby can go, wah, I don't like this. But at a certain point, it's maturity that makes you go, like at a certain point, my daughter goes like, I'm hungry. I'm going to go to the pantry and get something to eat. Only a baby goes, wah, fix this. I'm, I'm in distress eventually you outgrow it and you call it for what it is and you get specific about it. Why are you crying? When a baby is crying, you're like, well, I don't know, is it the diaper? Is it hungry? Is, I mean, is it colic? Is it gas bubble? What? We don't know. We don't know. At a certain point, you grow up and you name what is your distress and you look for the solution. You long and yearn for it. We don't stay in the place where you go, I was just distressed. So here's what Christians do. We actually name sin actually call it for what it is. And we recognize the price that was paid for it. And we look at the cross and realize sin is not something to be traded around. It is something that as we minimize it, we actually, did you catch that? We are running against the grace of God. To believe something about the nature of God counter to his character is to wave at him as we pass him going in the opposite direction. 
So it's good. Like, okay, so like you're experiencing distress. That's life. Welcome. We cry out to God. But as we do so, we begin to recognize our own frailty, our own sinfulness, and we long, we long for God to do something for us that we could not do for ourselves to save us, to restore us, to put us where we originally belong, even if it's a messy process. Even if you smell funny by the time you land where God means for you to be. But our end is in thanksgiving in Him, sacrifice toward Him, commitment to Him because ultimately all glory and honor because of His salvation belongs to Him. So just hear this as a warning. If you find yourself thinking, I don't, here's, here's, anybody who minimizes their own sin is Jonah. So if I asked you, like, who's the biggest sinner in your life? And if you think of anyone other than you, you're Jonah. You, are, you don't get it. Because functionally, you still think salvation needs to be out there for them, and you have not had an, an esteem and appreciation of what God has accomplished for you. If you haven't named sin specifically, this is where, again, we live in the area of euphemism in, in verse 2 and, and rarely walk to the, 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 the language of idolatry, but this is something we want to push toward. If you have not like spoken of a specific sin to a specific person, not nebulously like, hey man, we're all sinners, you know, we need God's grace. Oh, good for you. Thank that you're living in the area of euphemism. If you have not named your idolatry and confessed your sin to an actual person in the recent weeks, let's say, I'll give a wide berth for that one, then you are not, you're Jonah. You're not experiencing real repentance and you are missing. I don't want you to miss this. You have forsaken any hope of God's grace. You're going, the same dire- you're going in the opposite direction on the same highway. Don't miss this. Like there's joy that comes. There's joy that comes, even in a miraculous, crazy story. Like, man, I was in this one direction, and God sent a fish to save me. What? He did what? Yeah, that's the kind of thing God does. So, friend, like, repentance begins with discomfort and with distress, but it doesn't end there. And here's how I know. Orthodox Jews celebrate this story every Yom Kippur. That is the Day of Atonement, when they begin to prepare for the, the new year, Rosh Hashanah. And the Day of Atonement, a very sacred day where they consider their own sin, the afternoon reading for Orthodox practicing Jews is the 48 verses in the book of Jonah. And certain communities respond to the reading of the book of Jonah by just simply saying, we are Jonah. As they, as they weigh their own sin, they say, we're just like Jonah. We are Jonah. And they say it as a lament. Sometimes we just miss the boat. Sometimes we just miss, I didn't mean to say miss the boat in the story of Jonah. <laughs> oh, stop it. Stay away from euphemisms, right? They're not helpful. And as a, as a form of lament, they say, we are Jonah. We have minimized our sin. We've lived in the shallowness of seeing things and we are so prone to not see God and his sovereignty and his lordship, but we just live in the area of euphemism. We are Jonah. And they lament it. We've got something different here, don't we? I don't know if you caught that. It started with Jonah being thrown over and he was about to die. And it ended with a fish. Again, it's crazy. A fish spitting it up. Spitting him out on a beach safe somewhere. It started in the depths, his fate was sealed, he's going to die, and then by miraculous means, he's spit up where God wanted him to be all along. Well, friend, we are Jonah. We are Jonah in the way that we have seen our sins so shallowly. We run from God and seek to impose our own sovereignty on the world, and yet in spite of looking at our distress and a a fate that's certainly sealed with doom and wrath and justice, God has miraculously delivered us three days later where we were supposed to be the whole time. We, good news, are Jonah on the way, on the opposite direction of the grace of God. 
And in his mercy, he has somehow grabbed us and surrounded us in the depths. He has rescued us and pulled us and, and by miraculous means spit us up in a place that he meant by his grace for us to be all along. Friend, there's good news for you. We don't lament this. We, by God's grace, are Jonah. In an unmerited and unobligated way, God has delivered us to where he intended us to be all alone so that our response then, verse 9, is worship. It's worship. Salvation's from the Lord. I don't know how I got here. God must have done something. Salvation belongs then to a sovereign and gracious Lord. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your goodness and we thank you for your mercy. We cry out to you that we are like Jonah, not out of sorrow, but because of Jesus Christ, we cry out that we are like Jonah in joy. We recognize that we do not deserve to be alive. We do not deserve to be delivered Uh, But instead, here we are celebrating the grace of God in miraculous and unbelievable ways. I thank you for each of the the persons in this room that may uh, have an experience of your grace that looks very different than the rest. I thank you that in your goodness, you have used creative ways to to redeem all of us. And and we're just, we marvel and worship that salvation could be available to us, that real peace real deliverance, real joy, real gladness, not the, not the superficial kind of giddiness, not the, not the fleeting kind of happiness that comes and goes with our moods, but the deep and abiding gladness and joy in the grace of God is ours. It belongs to us. We don't deserve it, and so we're filled with humility, but on the other hand, we are so confident because you have so freely given it to us. If there's some in this room, maybe... Maybe that's just a mystery too hard to believe. Would you begin to even now begin to like draw their attention to the cost? Would you allow them to see the cross? Would we see the, that in the temple in the presence of God that is opened up for us by Jesus Christ, sin is held in high regard. But God who has not spared his own son to pay the penalty for sin, how will he not also freely give us all good things for our good and for your joy. Would you begin to open our minds to the possibility that this has been paid for and achieved for us in Jesus? There's some in this room today. Today's the day they open their eyes and have an experience, a transformational experience of grace. Uh, for some of us, maybe we're in just distress. Uh, some, some, self, some of it's self-inflicted. We're justifying sin. Uh, would you just begin to give us a new and a brand new beginning of an experience of grace. Show us how the grace abounds. The price has been paid. In Jesus' name, amen.